Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. I've listened to your blogs. They're awesome. Um, this is my backup. Nobody else wants to do an interview twice. <laughs> so, uh, that's my my backup for that. Uh, say your name for me. Michael Benet. All right. Well, Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's Thank a cool Saturday afternoon here. Fallish weather in the tail end of the summer. After some great go-kart racing. Some great go-kart racing. That is that is great. Your son won, leading the championships and won the race today. Yes, he Jensen did. How long has he been racing? Three years. This is his third season. Very good. Very good. Yeah, um, he's very happy. He's a great driver. And um, he's a great role model. So there's a lot of that stuff going on at the car track. I appreciate so. hearing that. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. How long have you been a member here? You know, I was an early adopter. When there were only two or three buildings out here, I was a social member with LAPS Incorporated. So let's say that probably goes back 10, 12 years. Oh, yeah. really? Really early adopter. I came up here in a Ferrari with my young or my oldest son, who was probably knee high at that point. And uh, we spent some time out here with various clubs, BMW club, Ferrari club, uh, nothing 100% Autobahn related until I came across LAPS, which was Sean Young, and he was an integral part of getting me involved so that I was up here more often than I could even imagine. Did Yeah, I met LAPS uh, last year. I asked, him what it stood to, I asked him what it stood for, and he couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Sean. He is just an absolute great representative, and um, I was fortunate to be a part of LAPS. So I ended up uh, befriending Sean to the point where I became an instructor for LAPS. Oh. So then I was up here quite a bit doing the instructing thing, and I was already an instructor for our region Porsche club, so it was a natural fit. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit further. Uh, Did you grow up in Peoria? Uh, Central Illinois. Moved to Peoria because that was the largest city that my mother felt we could grow intellectually. How do you like that? Really? Yeah, yeah, because we lived out in the farms in the McLean area. I'm sure you know where McLean is. Sure. The largest truck stop in the United States. Dixie Truckers Home in, in McLean. We the were Dixie, right down the street. Yeah, yeah. The we had a horse farm there. No way. Yeah. And what kind of horses? Mother, uh, Miss Lance. I was very young, so I didn't really do much with the horses. But uh, we started breeding dogs and cats. My mother at the time was a school teacher uh, in Leroy. Really? Which is where you're at, John. Yeah. She and, taught school uh, in Leroy. Lived in McLean. Yeah. She wanted to be a stockbroker. <laughs> and she became the first lady stockbroker in the state of Illinois. So once she got her stockbroker's license, she said, we need to move to a larger city. She didn't want to go as far as, say, Chicago, afraid that that may uh, be uh, difficult for my brother and I. She wanted to go to a town that was beneficial, and Peoria popped up. So how old were you when you went to Peoria? Very young, probably sixth or seventh grade. And she, she was raising dogs, too. Uh, we did the dog What thing, kind of dogs were you? Uh, Malamutes, Alaskan Malamutes. Yeah. Really? Yeah, 16 to 20 of them at a time. Uh, and, and, and nevertheless, we did that 
because at the time that was beneficial. Uh, those 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 were profitable, believe it or not. But a truck driver from Dixie Trucker's home stole all of them. What? A month before we moved to Peoria. So we went to Peoria with no animals and never looked back. We haven't raised animals since. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So my mother said, well, we she wanted us in a position where we had an opportunity to advance socially and we, we got into the right school districts. Um, she went and did her stock brokerage thing, which w- was very good for her. And um, we just continued to grow and meet new people. And it, 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 it was beneficial. What she thought was a good idea worked out. So, is your, you have an older brother or a younger brother? An older brother by 11 months. Ooh. 11 months. So, he, uh, he also became a stock broker. Oh, yeah? Yep, and now he's on the East Coast, and uh, he left probably when he was in his early 20s. I always said, I'll be the first one to leave Peoria, because Peoria, you know, it's certainly not Chicago or St. Louis for that matter. And I thought, well, I want to get to one of these places that are just shiny and wonderful and tall buildings, but yet I'm the one that stayed the longest. <laughs> I'm still there. there. My mother's on the West Coast, and my brother's on the East Coast. I... Uh, uh... I was flying F-16s there in Peoria, and when my full-time gig stopped, I interviewed with Merrill Lynch to be a stockbroker. Yeah, sure. And I went through uh, a week of interviews and had to sit down and cold call people, and they offered me a job. Yes. And I decided I was going to start a martial arts school as opposed Great. to be a stockbroker. And you should have seen the look on their face when I said <laughs> I wasn't going to take it. You're going to do what? Yeah, I'm going to make a living with my shoes off. <laughs> you are a multifaceted man. Yep. Yeah, they thought I was crazy. Um, Wow. Is your mom still around? Yeah. She's, she retired many moons ago, lives out in, in the land of fruits and nuts in California. Oh, so she moved to California? Yeah. Yeah. She tried to come back uh, when I started to have children. She wanted to be the super grandma, and she came back to Illinois, and it's just too difficult to live here compared to a beautiful place like California. So she went back. Well, it's a little different, I guess. Yeah. Where in California is she? Uh, she's Orange County. Okay. Yeah, she likes it out there. Uh, you know, I don't. It's not a perfect fit for me, but uh, I'm sure glad she likes it. Yeah, very cool. Um, so you got to Peoria and you went to school there. And yep, I went through all of their schools. Started in the grade school all the way up to uh, a community college, and used every opportunity to continue to advance with what Peoria had to offer. And ultimately, uh, oddly enough, it worked out. Um, and I've been really pleased, pleased enough that once I had the, the, my two children, Jensen and Sean, I thought this would be a good deal for them too. Uh, you know, it's, it's the right pace. Uh, it's very good people. People are generally honest. And uh, if they can use it to their advantage like I did, hopefully they'll have the same successes. Yeah, very nice. So let's talk about how cars got into your life. So my mom was a gearhead. Nuh-uh. Jaguar XKE. No way. Yeah, gearhead. And uh, we had that out in the horse farm, and uh, she ultimately... While you had the horse farm oh, in you McLean, bet. you had yeah. a Jaguar. She had a Jaguar, yeah. Driving it to Leroy to teach school. She did. Um, <laughs> yep, she, yeah, and she, she loved that car, adored that car, and so did I. Uh, and then when she needed something more, uh, let's say, family-like, she got a Maverick Grabber with a 302 and a stick shift, because she's a gearhead. And she drove that for quite a while, and uh, then 
we went through the process of uh, Mercedes-Benz when she did very well as a stockbroker. She got herself a convertible Mercedes-Benz, and I was hooked. I was hooked, and I've, I've, never, I've never gone back. I've uh, been a car guy for probably as long as I can remember. What was the first car you had? I had a, a 73 Audi 100 LS. That's what I had. And I got that from my uncle who worked on imported cars. No way. My uncle did, yeah. And my other uncle was uh, liked muscle cars. Had a Plymouth GTX. So I had the 73 Audi from my first uncle, and then I got a GTX, like my second uncle. So I was the fastest kid in high school, and I, I still hold that honor of being the <laughs> fastest kid in the neighborhood. <laughs> I live in a very silly neighborhood with 30... Uh, rather uh, difficult neighbors, and um, I'm the only one that expresses myself with cars. But uh, cars have worked well for me, and I, I like everybody here. We're all the like minds, as as you are, John. And and in reality, I wouldn't change a thing. So you so you get some cool cars. Were you working on them when you were young? Or? I was. I was. I was working on that home in the garage. My mother would say she'd go home. She'd go to work in the morning, and she'd come home, and I'd have a different engine and a different car. <laughs> and, and she's right. I, I did a lot of engine swapping, and and basically taught myself taught myself from where does antifreeze go, where does oil go, all the way to taking engines and, and apart and making some horsepower. How did you do this before YouTube to tell you everything? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because my sons, I tell them, boy, you guys just need to look it up on YouTube. But it was just trial and error. It was just trial and error. And I'm, I can assure you, everybody of our age, I'm, I'm over 50 years old, we learn from trial and error. And, and, and not having the funds to just go buy product was difficult, but it made us very resourceful. I remember one time I saw some aluminum tubing in my neighbor's backyard. He was a, um, a laborer. He had some aluminum tubing. And I said, how hard could it be to build a flying machine? I was going to build like one of those uh, little gyroscopters. Yes. And I, and I said, hey, can I have your aluminum tubing? Because what are you going to do with it? I'm mean, probably 13, 14 years old. I said, yeah. I'm going to build a gyroscopter. And he goes, okay. I had the entire frame built. Oh, yes. I, you know, I couldn't figure out after that but I did the frame built I knew I could find a motor yeah I just you know needed the gearing yep. <laughs> propeller and yeah, props well, well I, I came from a single um, parent home my my mother did it all by herself but because of that we had really good neighbors and friends that wanted to help so just like you you found a gentleman who had aluminum tubing I had neighbors who had spare parts and things that ultimately made it so that I could continue on whatever project I was working on. So I was very lucky. It was my surroundings. You know, it's the people that you know that, that can help you. So you see, so you get some cool cars. Yep. And were they all, f did you get a lot of foreign cars? Uh, that and, and muscle cars. So um, I decided at a, as soon as I was driving, which I drove a little early, like most of us probably did, but. At the ripe old age of 15, I was already racing with the SCCA uh, without a license, but, but they, they welcomed me. And I decided it was really worked to my benefit to buy an inexpensive car like a $600 MGB and sell that $600 MGB for $2,500, which, of course, I felt I was making a home run. And I found out I could do that because I had the talents to pick up a, a rough vehicle and make it into a nice vehicle and, and make a good profit. So from then on, I started buying and selling, buying and selling, and slowly moving up the ladder to the point where I am today where I have 
I have multiple cars in my garage and not a dollar of my own money in them still to this day. <laughs> yeah, just continue to buy low and sell Did you high. stake with MGs? or I had a half a so dozen This is the late MGs. 70s and early 80s? Uh, yep, early 80s. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I started driving probably in 81 or 2. And uh, they were late or early 70s MGs. Those were a profit center for me, as were Harley-Davidson's. I could buy an inexpensive Harley and, and sell it for a, quite a profit. Uh, and little pickup trucks, those little tiny ones you don't see anymore. Like the little VW ones? Um, <coughs> Nissans and Ford Couriers. Oh, yeah, yeah, those kind. Uh, yeah. Mazda, I had one of those. Mazda B2000. Yeah, I remember yeah. those, yeah. Yeah, so I, I continued to, to do that, and it, it worked so well that I didn't get it. I wasn't employed. I, I, I just did my own thing, which ultimately led to my entrepreneurship, which I still do today. So... <clears throat> We're going to get to your um, business here in a second, but what, what were you doing and why your business, and I'll touch on why your business is so uh, historic to me, and yeah. you've heard this story too many times, but I'll tell it for the podcast listeners. But So what were you doing before your current business? Then? Well, um, because my mother was a stockbroker and my brother was into the financial area as well, we decided that we needed a triangle. We needed an insurance branch, a stock brokerage branch and a real estate branch. So I got into real estate and at a young age, 21 years old, I became a real estate broker. And I was the real estate end, my mother was uh, doing uh, life insurance policies, etc., and my brother was doing uh, stock brokerage. So we would take one customer and continue to rotate them through our triangle. It's genius. It was, it worked well, it worked well. Um, but nevertheless, Every weekend was absorbed, and I couldn't pursue my racing passion because I was doing open houses, and I was doing real estate things. Uh, well, a friend of mine who was having some difficulty with his teenage son came to me and asked me, would you like to not be a realtor anymore and work my business, which I would sell to you so you didn't have to work weekends? I had to interview for this job up here in Chicago off of Addison Road. I had to interview, and I, I ended up winning the job, and bought the business, and it was wonderful. 15 years of no weekends, which allowed me to go racing. So I would be profitable during the week, and I would spend it all on the weekends. What kind of business was it? Uh, it was in office systems, accounting systems. I didn't do the accounting itself, but I provided. Remember, this was prior to, to computers being as popular as they are sure. today. And it, when it was all paper products, checks, uh, registers, journals, uh, receipts, just a number of things uh, when this world was coated with paper. Uh, and, and it was very good, very good for me, and uh, cold calling was still part of it, and a great customer base of all of central Illinois, uh, and I did that for 15 years, 15 years, allowing me to race on the weekends, which I dabbled in trying to become a professional race car driver. Oh, really? So let's, let's talk about that. So your SCCAs that we started with. I did. I started as an autocrosser for 10 years. I autocrossed for 10 years, which gave me a, a finely honed skill at placing the car, which is, you know, what's important for autocross. I did that for 10 years, which was wonderful. But then a friend of mine drug me to Blackhawk Farms Raceway, and I did a high-speed autocross. Oh, boy, high speed. And I did that in one of my BMW vehicles and fell for it hard. Never went back to autocrossing. So I got my road racing license in a Mazda RX-7, which I won the showroom stock A championship with Midwestern Council. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and that car then fell out of showroom stock after the first year that I, that I owned it because they're only good for so many years. And I went into improved touring and moved forward with a Porsche, which was uh, my, my highest interest. I drove that Porsche for a couple of years, uh, finishing rather well in the championship in improved touring, which was a regional class, uh, and then finally stepped up to a national, a pro slash national class SCCA, which was spec racer Renault back in the day when they were still Renault, which this was a great field. They're now all spec racer Fords, but at the time they were spec racer Renault. And I thought if I did that well enough, I would pick up a ride, a professional ride. And boy, I put my efforts into it, 100% effort into it. And I got still very in your 20s, 20s? Yes, yes, uh, <clears throat> probably, probably just under 30. So I got, uh, I got an offer from Procter & Gamble to cover me because I was doing well enough. It set the lap record at Road America, had been invited to the runoffs every year, which is a very prestigious event, um, and ultimately attracted some attention from a sponsor. And the sponsor, who was an associate of my brother's, uh, it's always like I said, who you know, <laughs> and a sponsor uh, took me under his wing and we had a deal with Procter & Gamble until Procter & Gamble found out how old I was. And they found out that I was 30. I had waited too long. And the moment they found out I was 30, they said they could not invest in somebody that was at that age because they felt that they needed somebody younger. So I had run out of saleable youth. So um, I had gotten to the point where I was in the pro uh, Skip, Skip Barber Pro Dodge. That's, a, that, that's open wheel series that they did with V6 powered from the Dodge Intrepid oh, open wheel cars. This. It was a wonderful this series. This is all of the United States then? Yes, it was. And I had gotten to that level, uh, was testing with uh, various teams, including an Indy Lights team uh, that, that was very low on the rung. Uh, so that didn't pan out, and I thought to myself, what will my next uh, endeavor be? Well, it was craftsman truck racing. So no way. I tested, I tested with a craftsman truck NASCAR team um, with uh, driver Jay Sauter, and, which is a name that is currently still competing in the NASCAR truck series. And Jay was faster than I was. He was just point blank. That day, Jay was faster, and they gave him the ride. So kind of, what kind of trucks? I mean, the big Craftsman NASCAR truck. Turning left all day. Turning left. And I really enjoy that. I happen to still own a NASCAR, and I, I, really, I really like that. That's something that I'm attracted to. So I thought at that age, over 30, uh, who else uh, was going to give me an opportunity? And, and NASCAR in, in their several divisions seemed to be the way to go. However, I took a shot at that and did my best. Did my best. <laughs> I took a shot at that and did my best, but unfortunately, okay. uh, it, it, it didn't pan out. And uh, so lunch just arrived in the background, so that's yeah. what happened, I think. Um, so explain the, the whole truck thing. I mean, that's not something you can do by yourself. You had to have a team. and We did. We, well, I uh, found a team that was looking for a driver. Actually, what they were looking for was funding. So I found a team looking for funding slash driver, and they just had a, uh, a test, a runoff. And as, as, as mentioned, I, on that particular day, I was not as fast as my cohort. And he got the ride and continued. And, and now I believe he's not racing any longer, but his son is now racing. Hmm. Yeah. Did you, how did they handle it? They drive like a regular car? Is it being a truck? Or is oh, it no, a big, we, was we it drove a, big, a Craftsman truck. I mean, is it a big difference than a car? How they, how they handle going that fast? Oh, no. As a matter of fact, it, it's the same <laughs> chassis. 
it's just a stick-on body. Oh, yeah. okay. So they hang sheet metal on to make it look like a pickup truck, but in reality, it's just a NASCAR. Okay. So you're... I mean, this is more than just a weekend endeavor, right? Oh, you're, yeah. you're running the, the accounting business and... Yes. Yes, I was running. And juggling all this stuff? I was. I was doing all that at once with, with only one crew member. Uh, one friend of mine I'd had since grade school was, uh, he could speak Southern. So here I am in my boat shoes and my, uh, you know, my Ralph Lauren pants, and uh, he would speak Southern to this NASCAR team, uh, and, and that was just their language. They were very comfortable with my crew chief, and, and, and then I was plugged in to be the hot shoe. Uh, but ultimately, again, on that particular day, I wasn't the fast guy. Hmm. Yep. Interesting car, the Craftsman truck. Wow. Yeah. I, I, this is uh, quite intriguing. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, yeah. I, um, I, appreciate I didn't know you had so much racing background. In the meantime, I'm running things like the One Lap of America with Brock Yates. I did that. I had Ford sponsorship. What's, what's One Lap? What is that? One Lap of America. They still do it here. They, they'll meet here once a year. Tire Rack now does it. And that is we go to separate tracks, and you compete at each one of those tracks, then you drive to the next. It's like the Cannonball Run, but they've made it legal. Uh, and I did things like that and several other uh, endeavors that are similar um, that are just in you know, good resume material, I thought. I thought. And, and we finished really well for Ford. Uh, in the mid-price sedan class for the One Lap of America, but that was in the late 90s. Yeah, lots of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's the same kind of thing that most of these Autobahn people do. Uh, they get around and, and do automotive-related things like like the One Lap of America. Huh. Never yeah. heard of that. Yeah, it's neat. <clears throat> neat so, I know you're a Porsche lover. Yep. Would that be the, your number one car you like? Porsche? Yeah, it, well, you know, they're just so well built. And I've gotten to know them inside and out. Uh, and a friend of mine who's since passed away, Bruce Anderson, was the number one Porsche 911 guy in, in the nation. Actually, probably in the world. And, and Bruce and I learned things together that I still remember today. Uh, and I was very young. And because of that, uh, Bill Wiggin was also a, a friend of mine who was super important in the Porsche world. And, and he's, he's now retired from Porsche stuff, but, uh, but lives in Arizona, just a, a happy life in Arizona. Uh, and because of that, I just, I started to think like a Porsche technician. Uh, their assembly procedures and their disassembly uh, thoughts and, and it's, their, their engineering is just exactly the way I consider it to be correct. So Porsche has become my favorite because of the way they're built. So what was your first Porsche you owned? I had a 914, 73 914. Mm-hmm. How old were you? With a two liter. Well, how old was I? Um, I was probably uh, 19 or 20. Uh, and it was a wonderful car. I ended up selling to my cousin. Um, great little machine. And then I bought Refrigerator William Perry's 911 Targa. That no he, way. That he had bought for his wife because the fridge couldn't fit in it. And, and, and I, I owned that Targa for a little while. From him? Directly from him? No, no, uh, actually from his broker. Uh, you did, I didn't get to talk to the fridge. He was very important at that point. And the, the little was. people like me, yeah, I, I couldn't talk to him. But I did get to meet his wife because she had to sign the title. Uh, but ultimately, uh, after the Targa, I bought a right off the lot Porsche 944 and, and drove that car with warranty and everything for many years. And just started to go up the ladder from there. Porsche 356s, 911 turbos, a, a dozen or so of those. 
um, GT3s. I mean, anything that that could be related to Porsche's fantastic racing history, I owned. Uh, I'm currently in the process of of actually building a wonderful car that I'll show to the to the Autobahn members here real shortly. That it's it's really going to blow some minds. But I'm not going to tell you anything about it until I show up in it. Oh, very good Porsche. Really going to blow some minds. Uh, I'm going to get back to come back to the Porsches for just a, uh, in a, in a little bit. So. Um, go quickly go back to racing. What was? Did you race ever out of the country or? Um, I wanted to. I wanted to race out of the country, but I wasn't able to put a package together. So we, I went national, you know, as far as I could from sea to shining sea, but never overseas. And you're you're getting in a, a trailer and a truck and driving to I all was. these. I was. I had a truck and trailer, you know, started when, when I was racing that spec Renault, which was a pro series at the time. We had an open trailer with two axles, my wife's Jeep Grand Cherokee, and my crew chief. And, and we went everywhere we could within, within the, the borders of our great United States. Uh, and we really did it low budget, but, you know, that's what it took. That's what it took. Uh, and then contingency was so good, John, we didn't have to buy tires. You run up front, tires come along with it. Um, awards that were tools and, and money and, and outfits, and they really took care of us. SCCA was gracious, uh, and in a year would cost me very little, if anything. I, c- I could basically race and consider it uh, nearly even money. Could you do that today? I don't think you can. I don't think the contingency is as strong. Uh, I think things like, you know, right now Autobahn gives away one tire, maybe two tires. Uh, you know, we had full sets and uh, back, back when I was uh, aggressively doing this. I don't think it would be possible today for, say, my son. I think you have to bring a wallet with you. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> so this is, uh, so you ran the accounting business until what year? Until uh, 2003. And then you went... Uh, so in 2002, I, I was our local auto repair facility, which was specialty vehicles, Porsches, Ferraris. I was their best customer. And they were also a customer of mine with that accounting business. So when that gentleman's family member passed away, which was the Cushman motorcycle fame, he inherited enough that he couldn't, it wasn't necessary for him to work any longer. So he started looking for somebody to buy his business, unbeknownst to me. He asked me to lunch and asked me at lunch if I would be interested, instead of being the best customer, if I'd be interested in owning the business because he was being very gracious. But he said, I want my name to continue in a very good light, and I believe you will do that for me. So I left his name on there. I kept the key employees that he thought were important, and he sold me the business. And that was 2002-ish, 2003-ish. And he had become an absentee owner, he and his partner. uh, So there were a lot to do. There was lots to do. For an entrepreneur like myself, I walked in and I had something every day on my desk that I had to fix and repair from him being an absentee owner and me being an owner that was active. Uh, So there were lots of things going on, um, but he sold me a gem. He just really did. It had a great name since 1977, Cowthen Mayer. This was Peter Cowthen, Brad Mayer. Uh, and they both did a great job of laying the groundwork for a gentleman like me to come in and um, put the spin on it that today's businesses need, that 
that those two had worn out. They had, they had had enough. Uh, customers had worn them down, and I was new and fresh, and and I brought an energy to it that it was due for. So this is the. I'm going to use take liberty here in describing the business being essential. This is the historic import automobile service center in central Illinois that's, that's right. been there forever that people come from yep. states away Thank you. Thank to you. come to find German names Kaufen Mayer I mean it's just and and you're absolutely right it had a historic uh, presence so you were an early uh, customer of theirs I, well my mother with that Mercedes oh, sure. she bought when she became a stock is it the same location same location same location yep. so you so one of those stayed with it which so Brad, Brad uh, basically sold off his ownership earlier, earlier on, right? early on, early on, because he wanted to focus on 914s, and he is world renowned, the finest 914. Oh, so expert. he's the guy that's still in Peoria, that's correct, with the 914 parts supplies, yes. yeah. and we still see him probably three, four times a week. Really, I did not. Wonderful I, I did guy. not know. I just knew that. I knew there was some a 914 expert over he there. He is the 914 expert in the nation. He truly is. Uh, and, and I'm honored to know Brad Mayer. I, uh, I'm honored to call him a friend. He, he really is a great guy. Um, and, and he still, when I have questions, he still has answers. It's, it's like I've said from the beginning, you and I, John, it's who you know. And so, and then Peter Kauf was the other. Yes, Peter Kauf had. Uh, that's when you bought it for, from. That's right. And he, the customers had worn him down. He had been at it for 25 years. And um, is he still around? Where is he's, he? He is in Arkansas, and he fishes twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. That's easy to take. <laughs> he said that the business had worn him down enough that he just didn't want to play with cars anymore. So he got himself a pickup truck and a rod and reel. <laughs> so you take over in the early two thousands. Yep, early two thousands. Early two thousands. And what do you think? So back then, I mean, they were doing all. Were they pr- imports only? Imports only. What would be the the most the the make of the car you work on the most? Was that be a, at that time? It was Mercedes Benz. Mercedes. Yep. Yes. At that time, it was Mercedes Benz uh, because they were all those diesels. You know, imagine all those '70s and '80s diesels, and and we specialize in that. Uh, the, the the V8s that were very poor economy and. Uh, all of those were Cowthin Mayo specialties. And then when I took over, uh, it, our transition, the customer-based transition to mostly Volkswagens, that became um, our probably our widest audience. Uh, and Volkswagen customers are very dedicated, very dedicated, but they're on a budget. So I began to push things like maybe some Asian cars, which of course never break, and then the, the exotics, the uh, Italians, and maybe some British cars. Uh, Jaguar, uh, Range Rover, uh, and then maybe even some Aston Martins. And, and we started pushing those buttons, and it became more and more popular. And that's where you, you, where you hear that we get them from states all around. And we do, uh, because unfortunately dealerships, in, in, for the most part, have gotten to, to the point where they just swap parts. They're just part swappers, where we will actually repair a part. We'll diagnose and repair a, a part that other dealerships would only replace a module. Uh, so we can get things done on specialty cars uh, at a price point that uh, most dealerships can't. Hmm. Plus, having a great staff of, uh, we're all 50-some years old, 
and we've all been doing this forever. And uh, we just pretty much have seen it all. And, and having that advantage versus a young buck who hasn't seen as much as we have, we can get to the root of the problem in a hurry. So I would guess in the seventies and eighties when the business was just was just going. I mean. Was there a Mercedes dealership even in Pure? In the there Pure? was. I think it was Beers, B-E-R-E-S, I think. John, John Beers? Uh, no, no uh, different. Beers, I should Beers. pronounce it. Beers. Uh, John Beers, uh, he had to Ford. Uh, but th- there were there were Mercedes representation at the time. And there was a... Pekin had a Porsche place, right? Well, even before then, there was a Porsche dealer that Brad Mayer worked at. Oh, I Believe it or not. Yeah, it was called... I think it was called... Uh, well, I can't remember, but the one you're speaking of is Midtown. That is what the Porsche dealer became, was Midtown Auto, which was a fair, fair enough dealership. Um, we, we worked well with them, where the recent dealerships that we've had over the last 20 years, uh, they have just been my best referral source. We get more business from the dealerships than, than any other referral source. Hmm. Yeah, it really works to our advantage. So what happened with the accounting business? You sold that right away? You sold that right So uh, right as Peter is in interviewing me for ownership of the business, um, there's a little other uh, aspect of Imagine Auto that I had been running before Peter interviewed me that was uh, modifying turbocharged Porsche 911s for sports uh, athletes, uh, on many levels to extremely high horsepower with open checkbooks. And, and Imagine Auto, we, we would have a customer would call us and say, I want a bright red, 700 horsepower, all-wheel drive 911. And we would make that car for them and deliver it to their driveway. They'd sign a waiver and we'd leave the car behind. These were extremely fast cars. So you'd go get buy, buy a new car? Yep. yep. We, Imagine Auto was absolutely like Roof, if you're familiar with Roof Porsche. Uh-huh. Uh, we were basically a junior Roof. Uh, and that is what attracted Peter Kauff to me for the Porsche. And uh, while he knew I was a great customer, he also discovered that I had the technical ability that the, that Kauff and Mayer needed. Somebody to guide them that would, would give them great ideas. Uh, and and it, it, again, really worked out. Well, I sold off my ownership in Imagine Auto. A corporate conglomerate bought my accounting business from the East Coast. They were trying to grow out of acquisition. They wanted to, to get stronger by buying up small fish. Uh, so they did that, and I basically retired. I, I was done with uh, the accounting. I was playing with the Imagine Auto, and, and Peter saw an opportunity to, to plug me in because he knew I didn't have much else going on. So that's it. I ended up with Kalthamir strictly out of luck. Okay. So, and that was about 16 or so years ago. Yes, sir. That's right. So for the podcast listeners, if you'll, uh, I can regale in my, my story. Yes. So, uh, it's 1999. My father had passed away in the early nineties. My mom had just passed away and he, my uncle had in Denver had a, 914 and my dad loved Porsches he loved it but he was classic Midwest worked at State Farm Insurance Company conservative as conservative as the day is long I remember he had $50 deductible on his insurance (laughs) you know and I I granted inflation stuff like that but he had the lowest he was just super conservative never would he ever have bought a Porsche and I remember when I started flying he wanted to fly and I didn't fly because 
my dad wanted to fly. That wasn't the reason that I had started to fly. I flew because I sat around and watched Top Gun about four times one weekend. Absolutely. I said, I think I can do that. But so when my mom passed away, I thought she um, was always encouraging me to try new things. So I said, maybe I'm going to get a Porsche. So I found... I looked on the depreciation curve of Porsches, and at the time, in the late 90s, 1983, uh, 911 was at the bottom. So I figured I'd buy it at the bottom, and it would go up, and that was about the right curve. So I found one in Southern Illinois, great car, Targa uh, SC. It was wonderful. Love that car. Chiffon white. That's right. Yes, sir. Chiffon white, yes. And uh, loved it, and it needed to be worked on, so I... And I had other cars. I was running martial arts schools, and I had other cars I was driving. So I wasn't, really wasn't driving a lot because I didn't want to drive, quote unquote, drive a Porsche to my business where I was asking people to give me money for martial arts lessons, pay for sure. their kids, and everything else. So I wouldn't necessarily always drive it to the school. So even though it wasn't an, it wasn't an expensive car at the time, so I, I it needed some work. So I took it to Caltha Mayor in Peoria. And uh, I'll never forget the gentleman came out. I wish I knew his name. Came out with a clipboard, and he said, uh, "I'll be working with you today." And I was like, "It was a weird like, working with me. I just dropped the car to get it worked on." Yeah. And he spent so much time with me, and so uh, he said, "Why aren't you driving this more often?" I said, "Well, I don't drive in the winter." Oh, you need to drive it in the winter. And I said, well, you know, I got another car. Well, you need to sell all your other cars. You should drive this car. This is the only car you should own. This, you should drive this car every day. The reason you're bringing it over and, and whatever was wrong with it, I don't remember, is because you're not driving it enough. And I felt bad for the car. <laughs> I felt bad that I wasn't driving this car enough. So it was over there, and I was hanging around this girl, and I said I needed somebody to go pick it up because I had to go. It was all done. It was a Friday night, Friday afternoon, and I said... I was hanging out with her family, her family and her sister and her brother-in-law. I said, hey, do you know how to drive a stick? And she said, yeah, I can drive a stick. I said, hey, would you go help me pick up a car in Peoria? And she goes, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So I, we consider that our first date, my wife and I. So we go to Peoria. Uh, she drives my 911, but she couldn't believe I was letting her drive my 911 yeah. back. So we drove my line. We stopped at Joe's Crab Shack. Of course. Couldn't get in there. It was too busy. I think we had an appetizer or something. Couldn't get a table. We drove back to Bloomington. Two separate cars, I think, still. And so our first date was, I think we dropped, no, I guess we dropped uh, my car off I drove, and then we drove the 911 that night for the date. Um, and I still felt bad about not driving this car enough. Sure. So uh, I put it up for sale, and I sold it. Unbeknownst to me, I would end up marrying this girl. We weren't even engaged at the time. Marrying this girl, and ever since I sold it, I kicked... And I, you know, as as busy as I was with... I started my airline job and uh, went off to the Middle East, got deployed to the Middle East... I thought well, I didn't have a place to put the car and I couldn't drive it enough so I felt okay and I sold this super nice gentleman who wanted a car always wanted a Porsche his whole life and here I am you know I wanted a Porsche because my dad always wanted a Porsche my mom was always encouraging me so that's that's why I got it but then I just kicked myself for selling that car sure. then I had a kid and I go oh I wish I had that car sure. my kid could drive I just it just killed me that I sold that car and I go boy if I could ever find that car I'd buy it back in a heartbeat I 
double that guy's money if I could find it. I said this for years. I'd double that guy's money. So um, 15 years later, uh, I'd gotten this thing of my wife was into cars, and so I was getting the different car. I bought her a, a 19, her, she was born in 1975, so I bought a 1975, one of your customers' cars in 1975, uh, 9-11. That's right. I, it meant something. It was, it was her birth year. And... I'd love to have, I should have bought a 1966, my birth year, 9-11, sure. when they yeah. were affordable. That's right. Right? <laughs> uh, so, it took me nine months. I called my cousin who worked at an insurance company, uh, State Farm. He found the VIN number. I took the VIN number. I called my police buddies up and said, yeah, well, we can't really do that anymore. Yeah. So, I put it into Carfax, and I found out where it was serviced. Sure. Called my cousin who knew the service guy. Went to the service. He he smoothed the carpet for me, and I went there and said, "Hey, I'm interested in buying this car." So he looked up in the computer and said, "Okay, we'll call the guy." So they called the gentleman. Same guy still owned it. Same guy. Same guy. And he says, "Of course, I remember John." As a matter of fact, he was 80 years old at the time. Uh, he goes, "Of course, I remember John." And we're going to sell that car this summer anyway because we've driven it all over and we're just not driving it anymore. Yep. It's perfect timing. So me and my my buddy, my we call him Porsche Doug, who got me into a lot of this stuff. Doug Crossman. Doug Crossman. We went over there, and we looked at it, and he had kept it inside, so condition of the car was exactly the same. Mechanically, eh, it wasn't the best, but <laughs> the condition of the car, so we went out and drove it, drove it, and I got, and I researched, I knew how much I was going to give for the car, and uh, he offered it to me for about what I said I'd give for it. So I go, well, I didn't want to jump on it because I wanted that car bad. It was so meaningful for me. I wanted it so badly. And I tried not to say yes really quickly. You said you'd double his money. He didn't quite double his money, thank goodness, because it still needed a lot of work. But anyway, so I go outside. I said, well, let me talk to my buddy about this. So we go outside, and Doug looks at me and he goes, if you don't buy it, I'm going to buy it right now, so you better buy it. So I went back in there and bought it and then surprised my wife that afternoon that I got our, our, our car back. And then my kids call it the date car. And um, took it, so I got it, and immediately took it to you guys, and started where I was um, when we had our first date. I tried to get her when we took it back over there. I tried to get her to go with me to go pick it up. I said, "Let's do this again, and and we'll go to dinner again." And uh, but we couldn't quite pull it off to to get it back. But so that's my Calton Mayer car that means something. It's a great story. Every year at my house, we have a. well, we don't call it a car show. We call it a cartel. Sure. Because I can look at all kinds of cool cars, come up to the Autobahn, we see all kinds of cool cars, but I want to hear the story. Yeah. Why do you have that car? Why is it meaningful to you? And there's, and I can sit and I can listen to guys' car stories all day long. Agreed. It, there's just so, there's just a lot. And before we started this car thing, I didn't have, besides that car, I didn't have car stories, you know. Now, years later, we do have a lot of car stories, and yeah. we and try to get meaningful ones, and um, yeah. and things that are important. You have car and autobahn stories now. Car and autobahn stories. That's yeah. right. That's right. So that was my interlude. So thanks for listening to my stories. Back to the more important thing, which is you. So um, if you had to pinpoint your favorite Porsche, what would it be? Nine seventeen. A 917. Yep. 917 in Salzburg paint scheme. <laughs> yep. That's the car that won the 1970 Le Mans. And, and I was impressionable at that point, and it has never left me. Have you owned one? 
Oh, no. In 917, I've got an Autobahn story. Uh, so I'm a big Porsche Club of America member. And at one point in the panorama, there is um, our man, Bobby Rahal, selling his 917 for $175,000. And I told my wife, I want this car. I want this car really bad. And I did everything I could, but I was still hundred grand short. So uh, Brian Redman was selling the car for our friend Bobby Rahal. And I, it was the Hippie 917. It was a paint job that was called the Hippie 917. And I really, really kicked myself for not buying that car. The last time that car sold went for $14 million. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, from 175 to $14 million, And to think I was short. <clears throat> so there's my 917 story. I've always wanted one. Uh, they're unobtainable at this point. Uh, well, actually, there's probably several Autobahn members that write a check for that. But I'm not one of them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So for a daily driver or a car that, you know, we could have, not take the track, which you were going to not daily drive, but drive it. I, I don't actually like daily drivers. But <laughs> yep. uh, for me, you know, John, I did get one of those early 911s. And uh, for me, I've got a I've got a early uh, long hood 911 that is probably ideal for me. A little rough around the edges. 225 horsepower, 2,100 pounds. That's a 70. Yeah, that's a 73. 73. Um, and, and I would say uh, in coupe form with the ducktail and the fancy script down the side, that's probably the number one car for me. Carrera 2.7 RS. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's probably it. Um, I had a GT3 that I absolutely adored. Uh, but this 2.7 RS is at 53 uh, years old. That car speaks to me. <laughs> yep. Very cool. Very cool. I do. Um, I, I do like those. I, the 75 compared to the 83 that we have. 911. The 83 drives just so go kart ish. Yep. You're absolutely right. The, S, the SC has, has become a favorite, and and uh, throughout the United States, the prices have gone through the roof. So, I mean, there's a reason for that. Yeah, it's great. I, I had an SC for nine years, and that has to say something. It had a lot of staying power. Yeah, I like, I, I like this. So how, so we talk, let's talk a little bit about your business. So um, someone needs any, what's the most exotic car you guys have worked on, would you say? We've had a McLaren in. We've got Teslas that come in, oddly enough. Oh, Teslas. Oh, yeah, we get it. Because where else in, in, in Central Arnor are you going to take a specialized vehicle? You need somebody that, that will take care of it, wear the white gloves, have the professor's outfit like you had spoke of earlier. Um, and we do that. So uh, we, believe it or not, are, are import-based, but we had a, a Cadillac, supercharged Cadillac in the other day with 700 horsepower because nobody else would touch it. Uh, and we were happy to do so. Uh, we put superchargers on all kinds of different vehicles. We do turbo upgrades. Um, but in reality, our bread and butter is still Mercedes, Porsche, uh, Volkswagen, BMW. Those are still our bread and butter. We see three to 5,000 cars a year, and, and, and we take them all in. Um, with a great staff of, of a dozen guys that just all love cars. So that's my next question, about a dozen employees yep. there? and they truly love cars. Uh, in my parts department, one's my crew chief that I spoke of earlier. Mm-hmm. He's the, the manager in the parts department, and he loves Mopars. Um, the second in charge in the parts department has uh, Volkswagen buses, a dozen Volkswagen buses. No way. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of buses. He's a hippie. And those are great. I mean, they're very popular. I mean, when yep. you, I That's mean, his retirement account. Yeah. He, and he does really well with those. 
Um, and then uh, I have my foreman, my shop foreman, uh, loves turbocharged Audis. He's crazy about Audis. And my uh, two other long-termers, uh, is one's a Subaru guy, loves the turbo Subarus. And the other one's a strictly a Mercedes guy who just will only drive the three-pointed star. Uh, there's me with Porsches, and I have a, I've got a Ferrari issue as well. So Porsches and Ferraris are covered with me. Uh, and then we've got a young guy, a young guy that is very into BMWs. He drives an M3 as his daily driver. He's hmm. uh, a wonderful kid. Uh, and then at the front desk, we've got a, a gentleman who loves off-road, anything off-road, like your rallies that you run, your rally cars. And, and the other gentleman's into horses. So, <laughs> so it, it works out. We were a really well-rounded group. We've got uh, expertise on, on th- through A through Z. So uh, I have seen, uh, I usually walk to the shop and check everything out and see the exotic cars that are in there. So you take, like if I find a car in a barn. Oh, yes. And I give it to you guys, and you'll do the interior, Absolutely. paint, engine, We, we do mechanic. do that. It does take time. But we had a gentleman who bought an uh, early MG uh, at a very early MG, 49 or so. Um, he bought it at auction, and we took that car to frame off and, and back again. We don't normally do that. We like to be more production, uh, get cars in and out. But that car, it, it took us about a year uh, and, and, and countless dollars. But uh, we can start from scratch on a car, absolutely. We've got a Mercedes 190 in right now that we're doing a complete engine build on that has sat for many years. We've got a 62 flat floor Jaguar E-Type in right now. Uh, We've got a convertible Mercedes SE in right now. All of these cars are in different stages of repair. Uh, And we enjoy that. We really enjoy it. We usually think of those as off-season projects. Uh, but uh, on season, uh, normally a car that stays more than a couple of days is a surprise. Okay. okay. We're doing a lot of Sprinter vans, believe it or not. Those diesel Sprinter vans, which is a Mercedes-Benz product. We do a whole lot of those. We become the specialist in central Illinois on those and minis. We see more Mini Coopers than, than any other organization in central Illinois. Really? Yep. Huh. Mini Coopers. Yeah. I do love, you know, that the... the, the um touring car they have a couple mini coopers here and i do? do love the interior i thought they did just a super nice they job with the exciting. new interior very nice i think it'd be great if i ever had a beach house that would be my car that yes, i would sir. have at the beach that's a great idea you know i can haul you know groceries back and forth and it's nice and small and yeah. i don't know why i just associate Reasonably that car with performance <laughs> too, eh? strap my my uh my surfboard on top of it. Absolutely. Well, we love adding adding horsepower to anything. So those minis, you can do that. The supercharged and the turbocharged mini both take to tuning extremely well. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So back to the Autobahn. Yep. So about 12 years ago, you said, so they had a social membership back then too? Well, it sort of was. Uh, LAPS was it is its own membership. Um, it can be considered a social. What they have now is a formal social membership. Back then, it, it was less, I'd say, less organized than it is today. Um, you can actually have a formal social membership, which they do over at the go-kart track. Yeah. That wasn't available then. So different, not yeah, that type of social membership. A little bit different, okay. yep. And just a few buildings? Yeah, believe it or not, the Delta House was here, which is behind us here. And um, you know, Ray Hall's place was here. A lot over on the north side, not so much over here on the south side. 
Huh. And how often did you come? I mean, you're here a lot now. I came, I came quite a bit. Um, normally about every Monday is when, when, La- when Audubon had their closure, laps would be here when they were closed. So I was here nearly every Monday. Uh, and then any other event that was associated with a manufacturer that I was part of. Uh, so I'd say three three times a month was normal for me. Mm-hmm. And now now it's a little more, but uh, I have some comforts of home here now, so it makes it a lot easier. Dragging a trailer always throws in a little more difficulty. Yeah, yeah. Without a trailer, you can you can get up here as often as you'd like. It's really become a wonderful place. I mean, to call this place home is is exactly what I dreamt about when I was when I was a, a young boy. I wanted to live at a racetrack. You know, people say, I want to live on a golf course. No, no, I don't want to live on a golf course. <laughs> I want to live at a racetrack. You can do that here. Yeah, and always have something going on. That's... Yeah, you know, waking up and hearing a, a formula car in the background or a GT car or even a Miata, uh, there's just really not much better for me. <laughs> well put. Yeah. So if I can switch gears a little bit, um, talk about being a father of two racers so when you're so sean is the oldest yep and he's 20 20 turning 21 here in a week and jensen is 15 yep 15 just has his permit oh that's right yes he'll have his permit right he has his permit how often does he drive uh he drove up to come up here to autobahn Uh, i'd say he drives every other day so he does like Um, driving on the street. He's got his own car already. He picked out a customer, had left behind a Volkswagen GLI with a turbo. So he picked up a GLI for wholesale money, and uh, he polishes it now and then, drives it rarely. (laughs) He prefers driving his mom's sedan. Oh, interesting, interesting. So when you joined, Sean would have been... Very young. Yeah, when I actually became a member, um, Jeff, our attorney, Greg Hunsicker, and myself all joined at the same time, which was approximately five or six years ago, we became full-fledged members, and we built a corporation around that, so we're a corporate membership. Uh, so that came into play after I had been a regular here for some time. And was there a car track back then? Was there a car track then? Yeah, um, it wasn't used by me, though. Uh, I, uh, we were doing several of the other car tracks like Springfield, uh, Norwood. Uh, we, we saw one in Indiana, uh, but we didn't stop by Autobahn's car track at that point. But and that now, was Sean, Sean racing then? Sean was actually part of a CRG race team, uh, and we still have that go-kart today. So he was in early. How old was he when he started? He, and unfortunately, started too late because I tried. I, I introduced it to him. Uh, and he didn't grab a hold of it uh, like Jensen did. Uh, he didn't grab a hold of it. Uh, so for only a year, he ran the go-kart, and I put him right into a Miata after that. Sean was driving a Miata at a ripe old age of 14. 14? He was on the track on the Miata? No, he wasn't on the track. He was just driving the Miata. Okay. Yeah, we, we would drive it on, in private areas. Um, he wasn't ready to race it until he actually had his license. But at 16, he's on the track racing now, right? Yep. And if... He did really well as rookie year, right? Uh, he actually won rookie of the year and, and then um, proceeded to continue to win. Uh, he's done really well in the Miatas. So I got him his own because he was racing and wrecking mine. <laughs> so I got him his own from another Audubon member who was very gracious. And uh, Sean's done great with it, fantastic with it. And he 
is in school in Michigan. He's in school in Michigan in an entrepreneurial school with an automotive, laced with automotive. So, so it's an entrepreneurial school. So they just entrepreneurial, and and they can base it on uh, automotive, which is dealership or aftermarket. And Sean, of course, would pursue aftermarket. Uh, or you can go to fashion modeling or hotel management. Really? Yeah, lots of specialties at this one. I love that too because it's a bunch of car guys with fashion models. It works out really well. <laughs> yeah, I can see. Yeah, uh, I can see why he wants to go to school there. Yeah, it's a great school. I, I might not be too old for anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he comes back and does quite well when he steps, oh, in, steps in here. He does, right? He's one of those guys that practices very little, just gets out there and qualifies and then races. Um, but for me, John, I, I was head of street survival in the central Illinois area, and that is where we take teenagers and we teach them how to survive out on the street uh, and not get in accidents. Uh, we have, all, out of all of our students, which is, uh, we're approaching 100,000 students that have gone through our program, street survival, which is connected with Tire Rack, um, out of all of our students, for as many years as we have known, we've had no traffic deaths since we started the school. Well, talk about this. I'm unfamiliar with this. Yeah, uh, Street Survival came to, uh, to the BMW Club, which, of course, I was part of, and uh, they asked to find instructors, which obviously, as I mentioned earlier, I've been an instructor for several different entities, find instructors that would teach young drivers. We're not allowed to call them students or children. We call them drivers. We so teach, 16, 17? Yep, uh, 15 even. Uh, we teach them in their own vehicles how to handle adverse situations, how to park a vehicle, you know, even things like that need to be taught. How to stop a car when it's experiencing anti-lock brake pulse. Big one. Um, how to avoid a dog that runs out in front of you. We actually use a an object to make it for something for Where you. do you do this? How do we you? do it in parking lots like Caterpillar parking lot. We do it over here at Route 66 Raceway. Uh, and street survivals become nationwide, and it is giant, and it is a fantastic program. And like I said, since we started, we have had no traffic deaths. So with any how do you get? How do we find out more information to get this? Uh, it's online at streetsurvival.org, and uh, it's super well known. And it just like the the event that Autobahn offers, they order their teen driving academy. It's very similar. Uh, the only difference is, is we focus on the student using their own vehicle or the vehicle they're going to drive so their surroundings will be familiar with them when something actually happens. Uh, we, we bring semi-trucks into the mix so that they know how to act around semi-trucks. We have classroom session that lasts a good chunk of the day. But most of the time, we're out on the surface. We wet the surface down. We give them a slalom to run through. We give them braking zones to run through, high-speed corners so they can feel the car drift. We want them to experience everything so they're not scared when it happens out on the street. It's a one-day program? It is a two-day program because we offer it on one day, and then we give a second day for overflow. We have It's so popular, we uh, oftentimes have to do it Saturday and Sunday. You can do the whole program for one day, but we always allow people to, to, to go over to the next day if, if they haven't gone. Oh, wow. Sounds amazing. It is great, and it's super inexpensive. Super inexpensive. Wow. Well, you'll have a new student here. My son's... It is a great idea. And, and you know, John, that's so. the reason why I brought my kids into racing, you know, the go-karts. Anything that they can learn here at the Autobahn, uh, even out there just doing normal laps, not even passing other cars, they don't even have to be in competition. Just driving the car and getting familiar with what it could do when it starts to lose a little traction, when it starts to make a squealing noise. All that stuff that we do for our kids, you having your kid racing go-karts, is helping him when the time comes to go out there on the street. 
it's so very important that they know how to, to handle any condition. Uh, and our kids and anybody else who does this will have that advantage over all the rest of them. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. Super important. And then, uh, so Jensen's 15. He's yep, cart- did he start it three years ago doing the carting he, here? He did. Or did you- yep. Yeah, well, we, we started here, but he did a traveling series as well. Uh, and, and the traveling series treated him rather well. Um, in, until I believe he had he had a, a course off, and then he dropped in the standings. He he was at the top of the standings and, until he had one misfortune. But yeah, he tried. And, he, and he won the series last year. Yeah, he gave it his all. He, he's had two championships at Audubon. Okay, so the yeah. first year in this, and then yeah. last year, and then he's leading. He's leading right now by a little bit. Um, however, uh, he, he's afraid that he may give it up because your kid's getting good. <laughs> Well, it was a great battle today. It was a great battle. Um, it was uh, two dramatic lead changes, yep. and it was uh, it was just great. So it is uh, great. They've put together a heck of a go karting thing. Kyle in charge there is doing a great job. Yeah, I I can't. It was just it was a great. And surprisingly, today the biggest group of racers now used to be juniors. That's right. The biggest groups of racers today on the track were the adults. Yeah, and it was a good group. And it, it was, was and it was good racing today. It yeah. was crazy racing today. And then the new chase race, of course, they or the open class. They've now switched to chase race. Yeah. Yep. I asked my son uh, <laughs> about that um, if he was going to get in because he uh, can't fit in his open class um, car. He's and growing he Physically up. cannot get in there. Yeah. And I said, Are you sure you don't want to cram in there for three more races? Because yeah. you could win the points. Sure. And I uh, said, I physically can't do it. So. Yeah. He really liked that car. Oh, yes. He's dying. He would love to get a bigger frame. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. If someone would like to get a hold of you. Yeah. Well, for Kauth and Mayer, we're online at KauthMayer.com. And that's spelled? K-A-U-T-H-M-A-Y-E-U-R, KauthMayer.com. Uh, and great, great guys there. They're more than happy to, to answer questions for any Autobahn people. They know that they are in the circle. They're in the in crowd. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.